So today we're talking to um, John Henry Brown, um, who is a lawyer in Seattle, Washington, and is, um, I guess, uh, very well known for representing a number of criminal defendants in our judicial system, um, the most famous being Ted Bundy, uh, who, uh, if you read uh, John's book, is called The Devil's Defender, My Odyssey Through American Criminal Justice from Ted Bundy to the Kandahar Massacre. Um, so uh, first of all, welcome, uh, uh, John, and uh, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Sure. So Be happy to. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sitting here in, in Chicago and you're in Seattle, uh, but I, I in, in taking a look at the, um, uh, doing some research here, I saw that you originally grew up in Tennessee. Well, I, I, I was born in Tennessee. Um, I, uh, my father worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, he was one of the first 10 members of the Manhattan Project. And um, so they built Oak Ridge, Tennessee out of nowhere. It was a high secret place. Uh, I was born there and we lived there probably for less than a year. And then we moved to all the other places that were well known for the Manhattan Project, the University of Chicago, which is where it all started. Um, Washington, D.C., Virginia, White Sands, New Mexico, Alamogordo, New Mexico. We moved uh, 10 times before I was in the 10th grade. Are you, so you're like, you're almost like a, an army brat. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so yeah. tell me about that. Tell, tell me about that, uh, your upbringing, your, your folks. Well, um, it was um, unusual. Everything was secret. I remember my father coming home on numerous occasions with briefcases uh, handcuffed to his arm which I always thought was kind of funny, but how would he was take his clothes off? Um, but, uh, and he had a weapon uh, and um, he was quarrying or being a courier for the Atomic Energy Commission back and forth all over the country. Um, there were very few things we could talk about at home about my, what my father was doing for a living. Um, so it was, you know, normally you come home and you say, what'd you do today, dad? And, you know, uh, I'm, I operated on four people or I put in four fillings or I represented 10 people in court. But with my dad, you would just learn not to ask. Um, so it was a bit distant of a, a relationship. So how old were you when he retired from that job? Um, he was very successful at that until... Uh, let's see, I was in, we lived for a brief period of time in Cleveland where my father had the best job he ever had out of the service. He was working and teaching at Case Western University and he was also uh, vice president of Tompkins Products, which was a big um, aerospace company. But because my mother had some illnesses, um, from she was a, child and the cold weather in Cleveland was um, could have been fatal to her. So we moved from Cleveland to um, La Jolla, California, which was in those days a uh, wonderland. And um, 
so uh, he stopped working for the government when I was in the fourth grade. So, so you uh, were still a grade school kid in, in when you were in California? Yes. When I got to uh, La Jolla, I was a fifth or sixth grader, and we stayed in La Jolla until I was um, uh, graduated from junior high school, um, was president of my junior high school, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, La Jolla was a very beautiful place back in those days. It's still a beautiful place. It's just uh, unbelievably unaffordable now. Back then, it was very beautiful and rode my bike everywhere. I had lots of friends. Uh, my, my most favorite time in my youth was, and if you read my book, was when I lived in New Mexico and just wandered the desert on a daily basis with my dog and discovered all kinds of the wonders of the world. And um, I, I'd say that my time in New Mexico was my favorite time as a child. That's great. And so then where'd you move after, after uh, junior high? Um, after junior high, we moved back to Palo Alto, California, uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and my dad was teaching part-time at Stanford and also was vice president of Bechtel, which was the biggest engineering, engineering corporation in the world. I think still is. It's certainly owned by private people. Uh, and he retired from there. And so I lived in La Jolla, in Palo Alto for my ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. And that was a wonderful, Palo Alto was just wonderful. I, I was very lucky. And um, then Palo Alto became all boarded up and everybody thought it was gonna go to hell. And then all of a sudden Silicon Valley started up and, and now uh, the house that we paid uh, $37,000 for recently sold for 1.7 million, so. Wow, so, you, so uh, what, what high school did you end up going to? Palo Alto High School. Oh, wow. Palo Alto High. How, how big a school was that? Um, probably 2,000 students, uh, very competitive. Um, there's two high schools in, uh, in the United States that usually com uh, compete for the best public high school. And one is New Trier High School right outside Chicago. Right. And the other is Palo Alto High School. I mean, my classmates were all sons and daughters of Stanford professors. So it was a very interesting spot. Um, Palo Alto was also the renaissance of um, many of the late 60s, early 70s movement. Our high school band was the Grateful Dead. Um, they were known at the time as the Warlocks. And so our sock hops on Saturday night would be the Grateful Dead. Uh, two of the members of the Grateful Dead were in my, were above me, two grades two members of the Grateful Dead were below me in two grades. And I, I got, some, I was quite good friends with him. And then if you read my book, you realize I went on to be a musician for a number of years and um, played with Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and The Grateful Dead and Big Brother and all that while I was in college, so. Well, you actually, you, you said Grateful, The Grateful Dead was your high school band. You, they actually went to your high school. Yes. <laughs> So did, Joan, so did Joan Baez, so did uh, Mimi Farina, 
Uh, so did a lot of uh, Ken Kesey lived up on Skyline. I remember the day that Ken Kesey turned on uh, Hell's Angels to LSD and they came running down University Avenue, blasted out of their minds. I was there, I saw it all. Uh, Palo Alto was a very unusual place because it was so progressive. Um, I didn't think there was such a thing as a young Republican until I went back east. So, so you, you were the class of, was it 69 or? No, I was not 65. 65, class 65. So you're class 65. The couple of Grateful Dead were graduating a couple years ahead in 63 and then some of 61 or 62? Yeah. Wow. And so then tell, tell us about your musical experience. Well, um, I, well, first of all, music has always been a savior to me. And I, I think particularly during this time in our lifetime, I have been, since this pandemic occurred, I've been sending out one song a day to about 100 people and the list keeps growing. Um, I'm fairly knowledgeable about music and um, I've been getting a lot of good feedback on it. Um, my musical experience began when I was in Denver going to college and my roommate, who was my best friend from high school, had always had a band in Palo Alto that was a good band. And when he came to um, Denver, he wanted to start a band and he couldn't find a bass player. And he came home one day with this really cheap Japanese uh, Fender imitation bass and said, you're gonna be our bass player and I'm gonna teach you how. And two weeks later, we were playing on stage. And, wow. then, and then our managers ended up being the promoters for Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and Big Brother and any of the big, groups that came to Denver, our managers were the promoter of, so we were always the opening act. And what was the name so, of your band? The Crystal Palace Guard, which if you actually look it up on Google, it comes up with us playing with the Yardbirds, who Eric Clapton was in at the time. Um, and I think the funniest part of my book actually is the, the times I had to babysit Jimi Hendrix for two days and babysit Jim Morrison for two days, which were uh, very uh, challenging experiences. <laughs> was it easier or more difficult being a criminal defense lawyer? Um, I, I had to be more alert. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were both um, very attracted to women in inappropriate ways, in my opinion. So I had to be protective of all my women friends, basically. Okay, so then, uh, so you got out of uh, Palo Alto High, then you headed to Denver for college, and you, you, you had, you spent yeah. four years in college? Four years, and- um, Where's that? Yeah, my dad, my dad was teaching at Stanford. I could have got into Stanford just because he was teaching. I did not want to stay in Palo Alto. I wanted to move. I was a skier. Um, my dad asked around his professors and said, what's a good school to go to? If you, know, you have a nice son, that's not terribly bright, but you know, nice kid. <laughs> and uh, they all said, suggested that the University of Denver, which turned out to be a perfect fit for me. And I absolutely loved it and fell in love with Colorado and Denver and the whole scene. That's great. And then, so, so what'd you major in? Philosophy and religion, of course. Nice. Nice. I'm, I'm a history major uh, and I can't get, I can't read enough books and uh, I love reading about our country, the country's history and the world history. I love all that stuff. And oh, I love, I love history too. 
um, I chose uh, philosophy and religion because I realized I could keep my class size smaller by doing that. And I always wanted to be in small classes. And so um, it was a great foundation for sure. Yeah. And so, um, so when did you figure out, Hey, I want to be a lawyer. Well, I never thought about it until I looked at my high school annual recently and um, underneath my picture, it says future lawyer. And I had, I had no idea that I had put that in there. Um, uh, I, I really didn't. Um, really? Well, I went to, you know, I was going to be a rock and roll star for God's sakes. And, you know, I, you know, Jimi Hendrix was a friend of mine. Uh, so, you know, law was really not on the horizon until I got arrested in Denver, Colorado for being very politically active in, uh, I started for a, a student for a democratic society chapter. I was a member of CORE. I was a member of SNCC. I was the only white member of CORE. My roommate was black. Uh, we were on the hit list for the Denver police, not only because of our political activities, but because my band was corrupting the youth of Denver with our <laughs> psychedelic rock. And so I got arrested for some bogus charge on 11 o'clock at night one time. And we had a band job that, that night and um, obviously, when you hear that uh, jail doors sound, I'm not sure you've heard that, but it's a sound you will never forget. And basically, I just started looking around and, and talked to the people that were there and realized that our system was taking advantage of these people. They were mostly poor and Hispanic and Black. And... I had a very wealthy girlfriend at the time, so I knew I could bail out quite quickly, but I decided to stay in for three days and just experience it. And that's when our band was about to sign a record contract with Electra Records, which was the biggest record company in the time. And I pulled out of that and said, I'm going to law school. So what did your, so, so your, your, you said your dad said to his buddies, where do you send a not particularly bright kid that wants to ski? Do you th really think your dad thought you weren't that bright? Uh, we had a very complicated relationship. I mean, he's a nuclear physicist, for God's sake. I get, I get it. And I, and I had trouble doing algebra. Um, yeah. so, um, and so it, it was a complicated relationship. Um, I, I don't think I thought I was very intelligent until college when I started to excel um, a lot. And then in law school, I was second in my class. And then I got a graduate degree after law school from the Ford Foundation at Northwestern, which was very prestigious. So then I started thinking, well, I probably am smart. Yeah. Did, did, how about your, your relationship with your mother? You, you, you had your dad with the briefcase with the handcuff around it. Did, did, tell us about your mom. Uh, she was an angel. She was uh, she was just really uh, um, basically unconditional love, no question about it. Um, just basically, and, and she was very spiritual in the way that I am, and that she felt um, you can do anything that you want as long as you follow your path. And 
following my path was very important in my life and has been for a long time. So, so your folks, where, where did they come from? Um, I, they both were from Staten Island, New York. My mother was born in Norway. My mother was a Rhodes, um, Mad, well, she was a um, National Merit Scholar at Curtis High School in, in um, um, Staten Island, New York. Back in those days, you only had one National Merit Scholar per school. Wow. Now they have like 30. Yeah. And, um, I was there recently. I had some interviews I was doing in New York City. And I went to um, Palo Alto, I mean, excuse me, to um, uh, Staten Island, and I saw her, uh, her plaque still in bronze up on the wall, which was really funny because my father was not a National American scholar. So, really? Now, um, you're, you're, where's your dad from? The same area, basically, uh, Staten Island, New York. His father was a very wealthy young man and they lost all their money in the stock exchange and uh, fall. And my grandfather became um, a dock worker and uh, told me he was the best thing that ever happened to him. And he and I be, probably became the best friends. Uh, he was my favorite relative of all, was my grandfather. You know, my, my, uh, one of my favorite movies is that movie Cinderella Man. Did you ever see that? Yeah, great movie. Uh, and that reminds me of those those workers, those dock workers, and uh, and that that story. I love American success stories, and I love you know where, to know where people come from and all that type of stuff. So hearing the story about where you know your mom came from Norway, your dad is from Staten Island, and his his dad's story, I love that stuff because I think that kind of shapes us a little bit, doesn't it? As as far as you know, who we become. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, the whole nurture versus nature thing. Um, and I think um, you're younger than I am, I think, but, you know, the children of the um, Depression and the Second World War, like my father, uh, you, know, you know, my father thought it was a sign of weakness to say you love somebody. Right. And I think that was true of that generation. Uh, my mother fortunately made up for that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I had to fight that battle for a long time with my father um, and finally came to rest with it. Um, and I mean, he was in many ways, he was a wonderful father. He provided well. Um, uh, you know, I was in Palo Alto, was in Palo Alto was a very rich community. And I was one of the only students at Palo Alto High School that, that worked. <laughs> what, what, had, what was your first I, job? Oh, I had, I, well, very often I had had two or three jobs, but it was usually working in sporting goods shops, um, very sophisticated sporting goods shops like Abercrombie and Fitch, and places where you could literally go and test the fly rod on the roof. And, um, and then I also uh, uh, worked in various other jobs. I worked at St. Michael's Alley, which was the famous coffee house where Ken Kesey and Allen Ginsberg used to hang out. Hmm. And I thought these were just normal people, you know, but these were the people I was around back in those days. So it's kind of skewed your view of uh, what the world was like. Well, so your, your, your dad, you know, for lack of a better term, he, he's a physicist, he's a G-man, and his son becomes 
a fellow that takes on the man. Oh yeah. Uh, was your, did, was your, uh, tell, tell me, um, how your father dealt with that. Well, he said something that, which was, I repeated in my book many times. And, um, and that is that he told me, um, particularly when I was becoming more well-known, um, that he was, he, he would say the, the quotes in the book exactly. And that is, um, if we're going to have a free society, we need people like you and we need people who do what you do well, like you do. I'm just sorry, it's you. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually came to believe that. Um, I was interviewed once by the New York Times after something just not that long ago. And um, I was in the trial and I was tired and I was tired of a lot of these profiles and you know, Wall Street Journal was all over the place. And this, but it was the New York Times. And so uh, I threw my suitcase down on the, uh, on the couch and the, the reporter said, well, why do you do this? And I said, because it's my fucking path. And um, he said, well, that's not very romantic. And I said, it's not. Um, I, it's a really hard job. I don't recommend this job to a lot of people. I don't think people should do this job unless it is their path. I was told, by the way, that that was the first time the New York Times put the word fucking on the front page. So Nice, nice. You know, um, so uh, I think I told you, you know, before we started that, you know, I'm one of 10 kids and uh, my dad is a social worker and my mom stayed at home with us and uh, we ran out of money uh, the, at the, you know, halfway through the month every month. And so all of us had to get jobs. And so, um, you know, my sisters are all working hard. They all, uh, you know, they, they worked the jobs when they turned 16 and, um, and then they all migrated to, to where you're at now. They're almost all of them are in Seattle. My 98 year old father lives in, uh, Seward park, uh, with my sister. Oh, I lived, I lived in Seward park for a while. It's a lovely area. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, you know, my uh, when I saw it, when I go to Seattle where you live, um, I just uh, I, I love going back there. Uh, the food is amazing, um, and the uh, the people. I you know it's good to be home when I see I actually see mountains because as you know, living in Chicago for how long you lived here, there's you know the landfills are the biggest uh, you know mountains. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm not a fan of um, Seattle at all. I don't know how the hell I ended up here. I, I think um, there's a lot of truth to the uh, concept of the Seattle chill. Um, I think there's very little culture in Seattle, and what culture there is is Amazon culture, um, and it's changed a lot from when I moved here where there was a lot of Native American culture, there was a lot of fishing culture, there was a lot of Scandinavian culture. Now it's just, um, it, it's a very uh, bland place. Uh, I wouldn't live here if I didn't have to. Um, I don't know how a boy from the sands of New Mexico and the sands of Southern California end up in a place like this, and I can't stand it. <laughs> well, where are you moving to? Well, I have a house. I have a big house in uh, Mexico, 
and it's a beautiful house. And um, I, uh, I spend as much time down there as I can. Uh, I was going to be there now, but I can't leave because of the coronavirus. Right. Um, so my eventual plan, I, I write, um, I wrote a book, as you know, and it was more successful than anybody thought it was going to be. Certainly more successful than I thought it was going to be. It was on an Amazon bestseller list for a while. Here it is, by uh, the way, guys, just so, you, so everybody can look yeah. at it. Yeah. And uh, that's it. longer hair in the picture there. Yeah, that's true. It was a bad hair day. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm writing another book now. Um, yeah, and what's this one going to be about? It's going to be fiction, kind of. Oh, so you're going <laughs> to play off some of the stuff that you've done? Oh, probably. Yeah, I, I'm beginning to write it. Uh, and I like to write. I didn't know I was a good writer, but apparently that's published by Chicago Review Press which is a fairly elite publishing company in Chicago. And so there, people think I can write and I like to write. So I'm working on another book now, particularly yeah. with a, a shutdown, I can't do much else. I am right. practicing, uh, I'm getting a lot of cases, which is interesting, I thought when this shutdown happened, um, business would completely dry up and that's just not been the case. Um, I think if people get in trouble now during this crisis, they kind of go to the first person's name they remember. Right. And so t tell me about that. So you, you have a law firm in Seattle? Yes. And but I practice all over the place. Okay. So if, if folks are in trouble in the United States, that's where you that's where you basically practice right united states yeah i practiced um in most all of the western states um i practiced in chicago of course where i'm a member of the bar um i worked for warren wilson and sherman magazine and skip andrew i understand Wolf warren became quite a good federal judge back there his yes. wife his wife joanne wolfson is uh, was a good criminal defense attorney uh, i worked for the best attorneys in chicago when i was there tried cases, that, that part of the book, I don't know if you've read it, but you'll get a kick out of it about the bribery and the things that were going on in Chicago in those days. Um, and uh, so I've tried cases all over. I just uh, tried a, well, I just had a appellate appearance in the Supreme Court of a Military Appeals in Virginia two weeks ago. Hmm. Um, so, Kind of all over the place. Yeah, and and what is mostly Western Washington. Yeah, what's what's the uh, what's the you know in your opinion, um, are you in your prime right now? Um, I think the last trial I had, which was just two months ago, I've tried. Uh, I told you I tried three hundred and fifty cases. Yeah, I saw trials, that. trials, trials which is, I don't know any lawyer that's tried that many trials. Um, and I've won more than half of them. Uh, and to answer your question, I think the last trial I did was one of the best trials I ever did. Um, there were some times in between five years ago and six months ago where I didn't think I did as well as I have in the past. Right. So the, the one thing that, that 
Um, so I, I'm a lawyer that mainly handles cases involving money. Like I, I, I sue companies, insurance companies, that type of thing. And you're, you mainly work defending uh, folks that are accused by the state or the federal government of crimes. Yeah. What drew you to doing that? Well, I've always been, uh, I have the perfect job, the absolute perfect job for someone who's anti-authoritarian. Uh, and so I've always been anti-authoritarian. My father, to his credit, was, when he was younger, quite anti-authoritarian. Uh, I remember him, him standing up for one of his friends in the Atomic Energy Commission who was uh, gay. And my father put his job on the line fighting for his friend and won that battle. My father was a delegate to the Kennedy Convention in 1960 or 62. Um, so I've always been very suspicious of authority. Um, uh, and I, I, I become more so. And I mean, what's going on in the world today? Um, I, I enjoy standing between an individual and the government uh, very much. Um, it's not easy. It's really hard, but I enjoy doing it. Um, and I have seen some outrageous uh, overreaching by the government uh, time and time again. And it's getting worse, in my opinion, rather than better. Um, so the job has become harder uh, rather than easier. One of the things that, uh, you know, that as we discussed is that you and I are students of history and one of the things that, that I've always uh, felt is that one of the first things that the founders of our, our country enshrined was the right to a jury trial. And um, especially for, you know, for somebody that's accused of a crime and can be confined because the folks that were here had had a lot of not having their rights held up. How well does a person like you need to understand the history of our country, the Constitution, and the, the various state constitutions? How well does the uh, jury understand that? How well do the people like a person like you need to understand that to be able to explain to the jury what uh, exactly you're doing? It's extremely difficult. Um, it, it, in some ways, and um, Seattle is also probably one of the most politically correct. Uh, cities in the United States. It's been dubbed that way, I believe, by the New U.S. News and World Report. Um, I believe personally that political correctness is an illness. Uh, I consider myself one of the most politically correct people in the world, but I do not want to be told to be politically correct. Um, somebody who reviewed my book recently, who is quite famous, um, She's an actress in Hollywood, and you can probably figure it out if you read the review. And it said, um, it, one thing you can be certain of when you finish John Henry's book is he is a politically incorrect feminist. And um, I think that's a really good ex uh, explanation of me. Um, but going back to your question, um, it's, you know, I recently, this case I won, which I really think I did one of the better jobs ever. It was a sting operation where there was really no victim and people being sent away for prison for 10 years for this stuff. And, and I actually went over the top, which 
I have been known to do, uh, and told the jury that the government, and I always refer to the prosecutors as the government, um, is trying to use you as tools. They want to use you as a tool. And, um, and I had a, a jury that was full of a lot of ex-service members and um, some rural folks who I didn't, wasn't sure that was gonna go over very well. But uh, in talking to the jury afterwards, they were very persuaded by that. Um, and so I think there's a spirit of individualism that resides within all of us. But drawing that out is very difficult. Yeah, um, one of the, in, in, in my experience, one of the most important jobs as a trial lawyer, obviously, is preparing for the case. I mean, that's not, as, as you've written your book and, and uh, I've heard interviews from you, is that you prepare, over-prepare, 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 so that when you enter the courtroom, you understand exactly what all the facts are, what the law is, and what every witness is gonna say, and you've actually physically read every statement, et cetera. But one of the things that, in my experience, that is very important, there's a couple, you know, there's obviously a lot of things as a trial lawyer, is when you select a jury, actually being able to talk to the jury and understand who they are as a person. Do you find that to be the case? Um. Yes, uh, 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 sounds like tooting my horn a little bit, but the uh, jury in this last case I won uh, told me that I had won uh, the trial during my voir dire. Um, so um, if you read my 10 rules of tri trial, one of the rules is uh, no boilerplate. And when I say no boilerplate, I mean no boilerplate. And uh, I don't think you should boilerplate of Wadir at all. These absurd prosecutors that ask, well, what newspaper do you read? Do you have a bumper sticker on the back of your car? You know, all these absurd boilerplate questions that get you nowhere. Uh, and I could give you some anecdotes about that that were very powerful. Um, I've read a lot of your interviews, and we're going to get to the to the questions about the, your, the, some of the clients that you've had famous, but I, I really like to, to know, and I think you know, folks that, that hire a lawyer want to understand who they are as a person, but as far as the, the, what, the, the anecdotes about jury selection, if you could give a few, that'd be great. Well, I think the most profound was um, uh, a death penalty trial. Um, my client was the um, trigger man in uh, his very famous case. Matter of fact, I'm giving a speech about the case next week. And it was about um, the assassination of 13 Asian Americans who lived in Seattle and were participating in a gambling establishment. And the 13 of them were assassinated, basically, by my client and another client. My client has given me permission to speak about this, by the way, as have all my clients who are in the book. Um, and um, you, you know, in a death penalty case, you have to believe in the death penalty, otherwise you're not qualified. 
In other words, it's a death qualified jury. If you don't believe in the death penalty, you cannot be a juror, which is absurd. But it's it doesn't the make law. sense to me. No, but it's the law. Um, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere. Uh, and so my client was responsible for killing 13 people. And I used to say, because I, I saved him from the death penalty, was I was looking for a jury who believed in the death penalty, but only for 14 or more. Um, wow. But what happened is the anecdote in that trial is that the courtroom was packed with 100, 150 potential jurors. Um, there was a guy sitting in the back of the jury room, but I clearly did not want anything to do with. He was wearing a Winchester arms belt buckle and a some kind of a duck hunting hat and um, just a real redneck sort of looking guy. And we were voir for a few days, talking about very sensitive issues, life and death, all kinds of things. And all of a sudden his number was called. So he was in the box. So I went, oh my God, you know, what am I gonna do with this guy? So the prosecutors thought they'd had their man so they didn't ask any questions other than how many kids do you have and what kind of truck do you drive? Uh, and there was clearly something wrong with him. Uh, and he was right in the front of the jury box. And, and I just walked up to him and he was a little bit like you actually, except with the hat on and everything. Uh, and I walked up to him and I said, what's the matter? And he started crying. And he said, uh, I've sat here for three days, listened to all this. I've always believed in the death penalty. I own weapons, I'm an MRA member, but I realized I could never put that young man to death. So the bad news is we lost him as a juror because he was saying he wasn't death qualified, but all the rest of the jury heard it all. So that was, that was an example of how you don't, uh, boilerplate anything you do right so so um talk to that that issue with respect to i i've interviewed a number of criminal defense lawyers and so you you represented ted bundy you represented some other folks that were notorious in the news etc how do you do that as a person you know you know, just somebody watching this and understanding how you as a lawyer can, can, can actually do that. Represent somebody that, that you know has killed people. I lost um, the love of my life to a murderer when, uh, she, in 1971. And I was in law school in D.C. and she was in graduate school in Berkeley. And somebody uh, murdered her and it has never been solved. And um, for a while, I became a believer in the death penalty and wanted to rip this person apart if I could find him. And it may sound a little bit woo-woo, but I, when I was in Chicago in graduate school, I had this very profound um, dream where her name was Debbie, and um, she came to me in this dream and said, don't honor me by believing in things that I don't believe in. And it was, it was very, and I don't have that many powerful dreams. And so um, it 
changed my whole perspective and wanted to do what she wanted to do, which was abolish the death penalty, basically, even though she was a victim and even though I was a victim. So it's in the, my situation is, I think, very unusual compared to many other defense lawyers because I've also been a victim as well as an advocate. And so, you know, one of the things we, we talked about was, you know, the first thing that the founders did was enshrine the right to uh, a jury um, in the Bill of Rights and then enshrined it into our Constitution. And, um, you know, that's one of, as part of our heritage. And one of the things as a defense lawyer is that you're just, you're doing your job to make sure that the state has proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt and that they don't overcharge and they don't load up a bunch of different things that are unrelated and put somebody away for something that perhaps they're innocent of or have overreached. Well, it, it happens all the time. Uh, we, uh, in federal court particularly, and I, more so under uh, uh, Attorney General Barr, who is uh, an embarrassment to the whole legal profession, in my opinion. Uh, I know U.S. attorneys, prosecutors who have quit being U.S. attorneys and prosecutors since Trump was elected because they didn't want to work for him and they didn't want to work for Barr. Um, but you see overcharging all the time. Um, you know, if you don't plead guilty, we're going to add 20 charges. Uh, sometimes it gets so unethical, in my opinion, that they'll say, if, if there's a husband and a wife charged with an offense of, let's say, money laundering, and they'll say, well, if you don't both plead guilty, then nobody can plead guilty, which, in my opinion, is unethical. Um, so we see an overreaching of the government now more than we have ever seen before. My job is harder than ever before. Um, I, I go to law schools and talk people out of doing this job, unless it's their path. Uh, being a private criminal defense attorney is a dying breed, because uh, most are now county employees or government employees, which, you know, takes away a great deal of independence. Um, I recently told a judge in a trial, believe it or not, that she was a particularly bad judge and she made some particularly bad rulings. And I said to her point blank on the record to her face, I will not follow that order. Um, I knew I'd be held in contempt. Um, she did hold me in contempt. And then she went back into her chambers and rubbed her head a lot and came out and realized that I was right. And so changed her mind, but at least I was willing enough to do that, which I think a lot of government employees are not allowed to do or wouldn't do. Um, I told a judge about seven or eight years ago, a sitting judge, uh, that he had dementia. And I go over. Oh, not well. Uh, he held me in contempt. Uh, the interesting thing about that case, he held me, and I probably would have been disciplined severely by the bar, but clearly he had dementia 
and it was a smaller county where there are only four or five judges. And one of the interesting things, and I was the bad boy, this case was not getting any publicity, it was a little case, but as soon as I called the judge, uh, said he had dementia, then the newspapers picked up, then the TV picked up on it, and I became the bad boy for calling this, um, and he was African-American too, which didn't help. So I was calling this beloved African-American judge uh, demented, and a month later, he died from a brain aneurysm. So then I became the hero, because if he had followed my instructions, which was to go get an exam, he probably would have survived. But at least I talked, every defense lawyer I talked to and asked, what do I do if I'm stuck with a judge in a trial where my client might likely be innocent, who is demented. Every defense lawyer I talked to, including some fairly famous people you probably know about, all said, there's nothing you can do about it. And then I talked to a conservative ethics professor at the University of Washington Law School, who's an expert on ethics, and he said, no, you have to stop the trial no matter whatever, whatever you do. Right, right. So um, you you were hired by Ted Bundy three years out of law school. Is that right? Yes. So was, was I guess, you know, one of the things I like to ask folks is what was one of, the, one of the most defining moments in your career? Was that it? Or were there, was there, other, I mean, there well, was, I mean, but what, what was for you, for you, you, what was one of the most defining moments in your, your career as a, well, as a there's been, artist? there's been so many of those. I mean, telling a judge he has dementia, <laughs> sitting, sitting the judge is, is pretty defining. Um, um, Bundy, you know, I was, um, uh, somebody who helps you with your podcast who communicated with me. I can't remember their Sydney name. Sydney Bettino. So yeah, Sydney Bettino and, and Ashley Zurich have been great producers of this. They are All right. Are they, uh, that's the female? Yeah. So Sydney is, um, Sydney and Ashley are actually, they're going to law school this year. Um, she told me that she'd watched, um, um, I've done a number of television things, and sometimes I like to do them, sometimes I don't like to do them. I was, I turned down the Netflix, did a movie with Zac Efron about Bundy, mm -hmm. and they wanted me to be in that as a major character, and I turned it down, because I was a major character in Ted's travels. Um, and then Netflix asked me to host the series they did on it, and I said no, and I could have used the money. Um, but, um, I was tired of the Bundy binge sure. and so then the oxygen came along and did this really interesting show about what you should really watch probably is four lawyers who are very well known for representing some very difficult individuals. How did it feel to represent them? And so that was a great idea for a show. So I did that and your assistant watched it. And that's how you got to me, I think. But um, it's, um, I'd rather not be known as Ted Bundy's lawyer. And one of the, and we were on the Today Show, I think, and, and the other lawyer, one of the other lawyers said, well, it's too late. Um, 
because you know I represented at the same time I represented Ted Bundy, I was making law nationally for battered women, uh, which I'm much more proud of than probably anything I've ever done. I helped establish as a defense to a criminal defense, a criminal offense, the battered women syndrome. Wow, so, what, what case was that? Huh? What case was that? Oh, it was Claudia Thacker and Ivy Kelly. Uh, and they're very well known, Kelly in particular. Um, and um, so it's really, it confuses people because, you know, at the same time I'm representing Ted Bundy, I'm asked by the National Women's Lawyer Project to work on battered women's cases, which is odd, just like also being the victim of a crime and losing right. the love of my <laughs> life to a murderer representing murderers. I don't know. It's just my path. Um, but I'd, I'd much rather not be known for representing Ted Bundy, but it's too late. Um, so it was a defining point in my career to the extent that I became very well known as a result of it. Mm -hmm. I saved his life. I got a plea bargain to save his life, which is recounted in the book, which you need to read. It's an easy <laughs> read. You can read it in two hours. You said you like to read. Um, anyway, I got a deal for Ted um, to uh, save his life. Uh, and it's recounted in the book. Uh, Millard Farmer, who was a famous lawyer from um, Atlanta, helped me with it. And we were basically depriving um, Ted of uh, sleep and food and other matters just to get him to sign the paperwork, the plea. And um, as we we're walking in the court the next day in Tallahassee, Millard was in front of, in front of um, Ted. I was then Ted and then me. Ted turned around and said, I'm not going to do it. Hmm. So that was the last time I tried to help Ted, actually. Um, I remember Miller and I went back in the holding cell and uh, Ted, uh, Miller had this wonderful uh, Southern accent and a real skinny little guy looked like Ichabod Crane. Brilliant lawyer, wonderful man, wealthy, personally wealthy, so he spent his money and time doing nothing but death penalty cases. Uh, fascinating for you to interview, I think he's still alive. but. Um, Miller put his skinny leg up on the bunk in the holding cell and said, uh, Ted, uh, John Henry and I, we only have X amount of time in this life and we want to spend on people that want to live. Bye. <laughs> um, that I did go to the Florida trial because I was subpoenaed as a witness. That's another long story that's in the book. Um, but I didn't despite his requests for me to help him further um, in his appeals and other matters, I declined. You know, once I saved somebody's life and they, and somebody like Ted Bundy, people don't even realize that it was possible to get a plea bargain for Ted Bundy, but I did. Yeah, um, and I, so I, I, I took a look at the, the letters that he wrote to you and I'm blown away by the letters. Oh yeah, I mean, the letters he wrote to you are pretty amazing, and uh, the the whole story is amazing. So, uh, but listen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. I know that you want to escape Pioneer Place there in Glen, New Mexico. I hope this coronavirus thing gets gets done, and uh, 
and you're able to get well, back. I've got, to I've got seven, seven trials set for the next nine months. So, um, In Seattle? Uh, no, all over the place. Wow. So, well, I hope our paths uh, cross. I, I mean, it'd really be nice to sit down and have a cup of coffee with a guy that uh, his dad was a nuclear physicist and a G-man. His mom was from uh, originally from Norway, and this, he's living the American dream, being the... Well, uh, and I haven't even told you the best part yet. Jackson Brown is my cousin. He's your cousin? Yeah. Wow. And, so I, and I, uh, we become friendly in the last four or five years. We've become quite friendly. And um, quite friendly, you know, he, he contracted the virus. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, and he was very serious condition in the hospital, but he's survived and he's back home now. But, um, you know, he's a, a true poet. And, um, you know, music has been, music has been a savior of my life, actually. And then when my dad figured out, he said one time, my dad was into genealogy. And he came in one day and he said, uh, you know this Jackson Brown character? I went, yeah, he's like one of my favorite musicians ever. He says, well, he's your third cousin. So uh, Jackson cool. and I become quite close. Uh, where does he live? Do you live in California? He lives, he lives has a beautiful uh, cabin in Big Sur um, that's off the grid. And he has a beautiful ranch in Southern California that's completely off the grid. He generates his own power. Uh, he has his own well. Um, he's uh, he lives the the life uh, he thinks he should. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a wonderful man, and he's terribly shy, but he's a, a genius in my opinion, and I'm so happy he's making it, and um, and feel very blessed that he's making it through this. Are you still able to ski? Um, yes. Um, I've had to put off a knee operation because of no uh, uh, elective operations. Sure. So I've been, um, it, it's been three months now since it's been scheduled. But once, um, and I skied last year, but see, on my 40th birthday, I climbed Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the United States. And I didn't train for it at all. And so on the way down, I really destroyed my knees. Uh, and I'm six foot. I'm also six foot six. And when you're tall, uh, you have problems with your knees. And so I probably can't ski anymore or ride my motorcycle until I get my knee fixed. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with that. And I'm hopeful that this um, this whole thing. I, I don't know when we're going to get going again. I don't, when do you think they're going to be able to put twelve people in a box for a, a jury trial again? Um, I would say optimistically june really yeah i i thought it'd be a little bit longer than that just because yeah well i said optimistically yeah no i get it i just i mean it's so i mean that's what we do we, we do trials and uh, by jury and here at the you know the daily center i it's going to be hard to figure out logistically how to convince 12 people to actually you know, show up and, and be in a small room with 12, 1,100 people. Well, yeah, that's another problem, too. I mean, it's gotten worse and worse. I mean, I had a case last year, one of the better cases I've ever had, a young black man. I lost a lot of money. I mean, I, I, I do so much pro bono work. People think I make a lot of money, and I, you know, don't. Um, but, you know, I represented Sergeant Bales for free, and I flew to Afghanistan twice and all that. And I represented Colton Harris Moore, the Barefoot Bandit, for free. But last year i had a 
really good defense case for a young black man that was wrongfully accused and I lost money on it, but um, there were 127 jurors called as potential witness uh, jurors, one black person. I know, and you just sit there and go. Where was that at? Huh? What's it, was in it was in Seattle. In Seattle? Yep. Oh. And uh, it's just the nature of uh, picking juror voter, red voter registration and driver's license. A lot of African-Americans and certainly a lot of people who are not documented don't have those documents. Um, but it was outrageous. We ended up getting a hung jury and then we made a deal. But still, 127 jurors. I mean, how would you like to wake up in the courtroom and you're the only white person in the courtroom? No, I get it. I, listen, man, I, I get it. And uh, thank God, you know, there's there, one thing that, that I'm, you know, I'm really thrilled that, that you took the time to spend with us. And so people can understand that it's, you know, it's really important that in our constitutional system to have folks that are really good uh, defending people that are charged with crimes. And because uh, it's the worst thing in the world to prosecute and to convict a, an innocent person and let overcharging take place as well. Hey, you want to hear an amazing statistic to end this with, which would be good? Yeah, go ahead. There's two things. When I when I when the book became popular and I was giving talk shows and stuff, I decided to make some use out of it. And I said two things I wanted to concentrate on. The federal government's Department of Justice estimates that five percent of the people that are in prison are innocent. In Washington state, that's 900 people, okay? And then the other thing was about the, the lack of mental health um, help for people in general. You know, every one of the school shootings involved a person with mental illness. Now, I'm not talking about the crazies with the M16s who shot up Las Vegas. I'm talking about the school shooters Every single one of those school shooters had mental health problems. And yet we blame the gun. I'm not a gun nut, by the way, but I'm not an anti-gun nut either. But a gun is a tool. Right. But people should be able to, I, I think a half a year of junior high school in the ninth grade should be taught uh, mental health classes. How do you identify mental health problems in yourself? How do you de define mental health problems in other people? And because um, every single school shooter was mentally ill and 5% of the people in our prison system are innocent. In Washington state, that's 900 people, which is an outrage. It is a total outrage. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, John right. Henry. Thanks so much for taking the time. Okay, take care. All right, say, bye -bye. Uh, say, say hi to the big statue of the lion. I will, <laughs> well, the Picasso. Yes. All right. All right. Take Bye. care. Want to learn more about John Henry Brown and some of the high-profile clients he's represented? You can find his book, The Devil's Defender, on Amazon. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 7 of The Opening Statement with Joe Shannon.